0: Good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Sam Gutierrez. It's my privilege to preach this morning. I want to invite you to turn to Philippians 3, verse 17 through 4, verse 1. Philippians 3, verse 17 through 4, verse 1. It can be found on page 1674 in your pew Bible. If you have a favorite Bible app, you can open that up, follow along that way. If you're joining us online, you can follow along in a Bible that you have at home, your favorite Bible app, or you can just listen to me or you can read it on the screen. This is Philippians 3, verse 17 through 4, verse 1. Paul writes, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the opening words of our passage this morning, Paul tells the Philippian church to join together in following my example and to keep your eyes on those who live as we do. As we journey our way through Lent and in the spirit of our sermon series this morning, I want to encourage us to follow Paul's lead and take up joy. But first, because we're jumping into the third chapter of this letter from Paul to the Philippians, let's do a little recap on where we are and how we got to our passage this morning. Paul's on his second missionary journey, and Acts chapter 15 tells us that Paul and Silas were attempting to actually travel to another place to preach the gospel, but somehow, it's interesting, the Spirit was blocking them from going to that place. That night, Paul had a dream slash vision, and the vision was of a man from Macedonia urging Paul and Silas to come and help. And so, believing the vision was from God, they traveled to Philippi. When they get to that city, we hear the story of Lydia, a purple cloth trader who was also demon-possessed, and because of that, she had the strange ability to tell the future. She was following Paul and Silas around the city and was annoying them so much that Paul in frustration turns around and casts the demon out of Lydia. Now this upset the men who were making money off her fortune-telling abilities. And so Paul and Silas in that city were stripped, they were beaten, they were whipped with rods, and then they were thrown in prison with their feet fastened to the stalks. That same night around midnight, Paul and Silas are praying to God and singing songs in prison when a violent earthquake flings open the gates of all the prison cells and loosens the chains of all the prisoners. The jailer woke up and saw that all the doors had come open, and thinking that all the prisoners, of course, had escaped, he prepared to kill himself rather than to be executed for his mistake during his watch. But Paul and Silas were still there and Paul called for him to stop. And then the jailer fell before Paul and Silas trembling and asked, "What must I do to be saved?" And Paul said, "Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ." He did, and then the jailer invited Paul and Silas to come to his house where they proclaimed the good news of Jesus and the jailer's whole household believed and then they were baptized. And that was the beginning of the church in Philippi. That's how that church got started. Fast forward 10 years later, Paul's under house arrest in Rome, and the Philippian church takes an offering for Paul. They love Paul, and they want to pay for his ministry, the preaching of the gospel. And so the book of Philippians is essentially a thank you letter to the Philippian church. It's a four-chapter letter in which Paul uses the occasion to address a number of topics, some of them being he wants to give an update on his circumstances, he wants to encourage them to stay humble and unified, and he wants to encourage the Philippians to stand firm in the face of persecution and to rejoice no matter the circumstances, In our lectionary passage for this Sunday, and specifically in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul tells them, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Without understanding the larger themes of the book, it's easy to think that following Paul is actually a rather gloomy task. We sometimes see Paul as the over serious apostle. Or the super-Christian, who lives at such a high standard that it just seems impossible to relate to. But I don't think that's accurate. In fact, to follow Paul's example is to take up joy. Now, why do I say that? It's because the book of Philippians has sometimes been called the book of joy. In the four short chapters that make up the entire letter, Paul uses the word joy or a variation of the word joy, sometimes rejoice. A total of 16 times. Remember, he's in prison. The word joy comes from the Greek. It means to be exceedingly glad. Joy is a gift. It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that is not conjured up or willed within ourselves. It's something that the Spirit works in us, produces in our hearts. Joy is something that we can experience and it can be expressed in a lot of different ways. Sometimes joy can be ecstatic. Maybe sometimes you feel it. Maybe it expresses itself in an emotion, but sometimes, oftentimes, joy is very quiet, and it can also be very subtle. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase before, but it's often been said that happiness is based on happenings, and then joy is based on Jesus trying to differentiate between joy and happiness. And I've always heard that phrase. I don't know if you've heard it, but I always thought it was a little bit cheesy. Um, But there's something actually true about it. Because we can't control what's going to happen to us. Paul writes at one point in the letter, whatever happens, no matter the circumstances, joy is still possible because joy flows from a relationship. And no one can ever take that away. Paul would know Paul's in prison. Paul knows that the Romans can chain his wrists, but they can't chain his relationship with Christ. Paul knows that they can take away his freedom, but the Romans can never take away God's love. He knows that they can beat him and they can make him bleed, but they can't take away the truth that Paul belongs to Jesus. It's important to name this because Paul says something in our passage this morning In verse 4, or 4 verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. The season of Lent is about humility. With all the awareness that we can muster, we recall that we are made of dust. And to dust we will return. And so we pray the prayer of Psalm 90 verse 1. Teach us to number our days. That we may gain a heart of wisdom. And so in Lent, we turn away from sin and foolishness and we turn to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness. Lent is a hard road, it asks a lot of us, but it's not without joy. And that's why it's important to remember Paul's encouragement. What he's saying here to the Philippian Christians is rather simple life is hard, there are many dangers. Enemies in various forms abound, but don't give up. Stand firm. Wait on the Lord. And do all of it in a spirit of deep joy. And then Paul says, basically, if you don't know how to do this, then look to me as an example. And then he broadens it out. Not just me, but those in your church community who embody this, who are mature and wise. And so it seems to me that much of the Christian life is not taught, but it's caught. We pick it up from those around us. We watch, we learn, we imitate. We learn how to follow Jesus by watching other people follow Jesus. This morning I want to give three examples of how we learn from others rather short stories, I want to tell you how I learned to be a pastor, how Chris Bodie learned to play the trumpet, and how some inner-city kids learned how to give a blessing. First, how I learned to be a pastor. My first job out of college, I worked as a youth pastor at a church in Northern California. I didn't know a lot about ministry because I was a graphic design major. I was an art major. But I had an interest in ministry, and this church uh, took a chance on me. And much of what I learned about being a pastor was simply by watching Kevin Adams, the head pastor of that church, and learning from him. I learned how to be a mentor by being mentored by him. I learned to schedule weekly check-ins with those that I mentor because he did weekly check-ins with me. I learned how to work on setting goals with those under my supervision because for three years I sat under his leadership, and he helped me set my goals. He would invite me to council meetings where I could watch and observe. When I was ready, he would pull me aside and give me some important advice, teaching me lessons about leadership. At one point after a meeting, he said, Sam, I love how you listen. Listening is a very important part of being a leader. But when you're a leader, you can't only listen you also have to speak. A leader always brings something to contribute to the conversation. It can be a question, it can be a thought, a comment, an idea. That's not the only thing I learned from Kevin Adams. I learned how to take care of folks by simply observing the way that he took care of people. The way he took an interest in people. I learned a lot from him about the passion that he had for folks who didn't go to church. It was a church plant. Their whole idea was we want to create a church for people who don't go to church. He just had a heart for people who maybe would never think about going to a church, but then somehow found themselves in church. And so he would craft every aspect of the service in a hospitable way to make everyone feel welcome. Spiritual veterans, novices, those with faith, no faith, faith filled with doubt. In fact, a lot of what I've learned about being a pastor and being hospitable up here in this space and trying to make everyone feel welcome no matter where you are, whether you've been in church your whole life or it's your first Sunday, I learned from Kevin Adams. It's nothing he really taught me, it's just how he embodied it. I just watched him, I learned, he modeled it for me. Here's the second thing, how Chris Bodie learned how to play the trumpet. A number of years ago, the trumpet player Chris Bodie put out a special, you can still find it online, Chris Bodie live with special guests, including Sting and Jill Scott and other famous musician friends of his. In between the concert footage, the film would switch to interview-style footage where Chris sits and talks about his influences, his history, and what what has led him to this important concert night at the Wilshire Theatre. And at one point, he's reflecting on some of his best and most formative trumpet teachers and mentors. He described one teacher who employed a method of playing via listening and then imitation. The lessons would go like this. They'd sit face-to-face on chairs facing each other, not that far apart, And the veteran trumpet player would play a series of notes starting simply. And when he finished, he'd point at Chris and say, Now you play it. Chris would stumble around hitting some of the notes, and and then the master teacher would play it again and say, Now you play it. They would go back and forth like this I play, now you play. Until Chris mastered not just the notes, but the tone and the nuance, and the feeling. And slowly they would build the bass and then graduate to more complex melodies and sequences of notes. The teacher would say, I play, now you play. Lastly, I want to give an example of how some inner city kids learned how to give a blessing. I got this story from a book by Mark Yaconelli, where he talks a lot about youth ministry. He used to be a youth minister for a long time. starts out by saying, I once attended a ministry conference where I sat next to a woman who served as an Episcopal priest in Chicago. We began to talk about our work when I mentioned that I was a youth minister, and she told me that her first job at a seminary was a position as a junior high youth director for a struggling inner city church. But then quickly added, I only lasted six months. When I asked her why, she told me the following story. She said, The church I served was in a very poor area. And the junior high youth ministry was one of the few programs for young teenagers in the neighborhood. Every Sunday night, the church would fill with about 50 kids from the surrounding buildings. And in those days, the junior high ministry consisted of a short worship designed for junior high students. We'd have upbeat music and a brief youth friendly uh, sermon. But much of the service was taken from the formal book of common prayer, which is the worship manual of the Episcopal Church, and this meant that there were lots of prayers and readings and responses that the kids were supposed to do. The problem was that most of these kids couldn't read. This fact, combined with the young people's excitement at being together, made the junior high worship service pure bedlam, craziness. The kids would wrestle and giggle in the pews, they'd run and hide in the organ pipes, they'd put on choir robes and chase each other. I was fresh out of seminary and had a very different idea of my life as a priest. I wanted this to be prim, I wanted to be a prim and holy priest, but instead I spent most of these youth services chasing, disciplining, and shouting at kids to be quiet. In those days, the service ended with a blessing. The kids would line up in front of me, then one by one, they'd come forward. I'd place my hand on their head and read this little blessing over them. It took a long time to do this because there were so many kids, and they had a hard time staying in line, but I was a good Episcopalian, so I pushed ahead and made sure I gave the blessing to each child as instructed. After six months, I couldn't take it anymore. I felt completely inadequate and unprepared for those kids. And the whole thing was just so unruly That I told the rector that I was quitting. On my last night with the kids, I began the service by announcing my resignation. I guess I'd hoped that when the kids heard that it was my last night, they'd act a little more respectful. But this was just wishful thinking. The kids were as unruly on my last night as they were on the first. And when it came to the end of the service, I lined them up as best I could, and then I gave them each their little blessing and sent them out the door and back to their homes. But halfway through the blessing, this young girl interrupted me and said, Hey, who gives you a blessing? I was exasperated and ignored the girl's question, but she stood up, holding the line up, and asked again, Who gives you a blessing? I told her to run along with the others, but she wouldn't move. Who gives you a blessing? Exasperated, I told her something quickly about getting blessed by bishops at conferences or something, but then she got this idea and lit up. Hey, pastor, can we give you a blessing? This idea spread through the line of kids like wildfire. Soon all of them rushed forward, crowded around me, and started clamoring, I want to give you a blessing. No, let me do it. I'm older. I want to give her a blessing. It was my idea. Let me do it. I shouted at the kids to get back in line, but they wouldn't do it. Finally, I acquiesced. I told them that if they promised to go quietly from the church and back to their homes, I would let them all give me a blessing. Well, they became ecstatic. They started crowding around me and jumping up and down and climbing on the altar and trying to get their hands on my head. Most of them couldn't reach, so they begged me to get on my knees. I walked out to an open space and knelt down, And these kids giggled and laughed as they pushed in around me. Then they all stretched out their sweaty young hands and piled over my head, face, shoulders, back. It got quiet for a moment. They hesitated, not knowing what to do. And then suddenly, one of them started to recite this blessing. Immediately, the rest of them joined in. These kids most of them illiterate, recited from memory the blessing I'd heard, that they heard me say over each of them. They learned how to bless others by themselves being blessed. Just a short conclusion here. Lent is about walking with Jesus while we engage in spiritual practices like prayer and fasting and repentance. But it's not without joy. Underneath Lent, there is a river of gratitude flowing because of what never changes in an ever-changing world, the faithful presence of God. That is our joy. We learn how to stand firm in the midst of difficult circumstances with joy by watching others do it. That's why Paul says, watch me. Okay, now you do it. And then Paul broadens the mentoring landscape and says, don't just look at me. Look at those around you. Right here. In a place like Alger Park Church. Verse 17, he says, join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. What is the example? Standing firm... With joy, because of the God who will never leave us or forsake us, whose presence is with us every moment of our lives, and whose promises never fail. That's a reason for joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your Word, thank You for Your grace, thank You for people like Paul and Silas, thank You for all the grandmothers and grandfathers and friends and aunts and uncles who've walked the road of discipleship, who followed You, who stood firm with joy, Help us to watch and listen and learn. And Lord, somehow give us the grace and the power and the courage that maybe one day people can look at us. Younger people can look at us to know how to do it, how to stand firm, how to have joy, how to follow you. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.